0: Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky.
1: And finally, this morning, our scripture comes from Luke 6, 1 through 11. So if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and His disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions." Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
0: morning, friends. My name's Jonathan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and uh, if you're visiting with us, we are so glad you're here with us today. You know, the longer we live, the more we realize how complicated our decisions in life can really be. We have six kids, maybe you know, and we're right now dealing with the sixth run at trying to figure out college and what to do. Maybe you're in that situation. Maybe you've got younger kids, and every year you're trying to figure out how to school them or what What the options are. Maybe you're trying to figure that out for yourself, what your next job or school situation should look like. Maybe you're on the other end of it and you're happy you don't have all those decisions, but you're facing decisions about retirement and how to spend your money and where to live, all those things. So there's that kind of decision that's not moral, but still complicated. And then, of course, there are other decisions that are just moral. There are things that are right or wrong to do. But then there's this other category of decisions we face in life that are the most complicated because they are like where there are two good things that you might do, and when you do one, you might even violate the other. And these are called moral or ethical dilemmas, and they've been around for a long time because life is complicated. In fact, philosophers and theologians for a long time have been thinking about what do you do when there's something that's good to do but in doing that you're going to break some other good to do like some easy examples you can think of are like Think of Corrie ten Boom, an example of a, a faithful woman who hid Jewish people during Nazi occupation. She's obviously lying to the Nazis. There aren't Jewish people there, but she's saving a life. That would maybe seem pretty easy to us, but there's still underneath it this issue. You've got two things that conflict with each other that are maybe even what God commanded, not lying and also preserving life. For a long time, philosophers have had this one problem maybe you've heard of it, it's a made up one, it's kind of silly in some ways, but it actually puts, puts its finger right on this, it's called the trolley problem, have you heard of this? It's a good one to wrestle with, where the idea is, again, just a made-up story, that you're standing there by a track, and there's a trolley coming down that has a bunch of people on it, and it is going to crash, and the people are going to die, and you're by the switch, and you can switch it, and if you do, it'll send the trolley down another track, and they'll survive, they'll hit a sand pit or whatever it is. I don't know why there's a sand pit at the end of a trap, but whatever it is, you, you, uh, you are going to save them, but there's someone crossing the tracks right there, and if you switch it, then that person will die. So what's the right thing to do? Save more people or less people? And then what happens if you know some of the people? Does that affect your decision? What happens if the people crossing the track or on the trolley are doctors or, you know, surgeons, whatever it is, or criminals? Or does that affect the decision? And again, it's a made-up story, but it actually is an example of the kind of complex situations we find ourselves in often. And the reason I'm bringing this up today is not to like ruin the rest of your day, like all afternoon you're going to be thinking, what should you do in that case? That's not the point, although it's good to think about. The point is that actually our text for today, Jesus is facing one of those very complex moral decisions and really steps into it, and it has a big impact. And in fact, what we're going to see is that like most of the stories in the Gospels, when Jesus ends up interacting with people, The conversation doesn't go the way they think it's going to. And that's definitely what's going to happen in this very intense story as well. And so what's happening is, and if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 6. We're going through the gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 6, we're going to see this really important story where this kind of issue comes up. And again, we'll put some verse on the screen, but if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can pull it up on your phone, or page 836, there's a Bible, should be in front of you, in the the chair, underneath the chair in front of you, you can turn there and look. Matthew, or Luke chapter 6, did I say Matthew before? Sorry, Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 11 is what we're looking at, and what's happened is that going back to chapter 5 in verse 17, and we've seen these stories over the last several weeks, you have a whole bunch of stories put together that all are showing us who Jesus is, but showing us who he is from the perspective of the people who don't like him, from the perspective of his enemies. One commentator calls these stories the trouble with Jesus or Jesus and his critics because they don't like These are the religious conservative leaders of the day. They don't like the authority that he's assuming. They don't like the company he's keeping. They don't like the kind of lifestyle he's encouraging. And now in our story, they're really not going to like the fact that he puts his finger right on a very important tradition and challenges how they think about it. And the reason these stories are so helpful for us, I mean, the Gospels are given to us so that we can kind of understand who God is as revealed in Jesus and, and thereby come to understand ourselves clearly as well. We're gonna see that for today. But it, it is very interesting to consider what we learn about Jesus by way of contrast. It's kind of like a contrast MRI or something you might do where you can, you learn something about him and about ourselves by seeing how they viewed him negatively. And, it's, and the reason It's really important is because in the end of our story that was just read in 611, it says they were furious and basically they decided they needed to do something about him. In Matthew's version, it's even more strongly worded. It says in Matthew 12, 14, they decided to kill him. So this is a really, really important story. There's a lot going on that shows who Jesus is and who we are as well. So if, if you look there with me, we're going to just kind of walk through the story and understand what's happening and then ask, what does this mean for us today? So we actually have two separate stories that are all centered on the Sabbath, we'll see. And if you look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, you'll see that the story sets out pretty normally. Jesus is walking with his disciples through some grain fields and it's probably, a, I mean, it is a Sabbath day. They're probably on the way to the synagogue. And as they're passing through some fields, they, you know, take, grab some of the grain and rub it in their hands and pop them in their mouths. And, you know, it's a very natural kind of thing to do, as natural as us stopping by Starbucks or getting a donut on the way to church or something. No, no big deal, but the Pharisees and the scribes, the, the, the Bible scholars, the religious people today, the conservative people today Get very mad at this. Now, I always kind of think like, how did they know this was happening? I'm kind of imagining they're like popping up out of, out of the grain field or something. Like, well, I'm not sure they were, they were spying on them to some degree, but whatever it is, however it happened, they see this and they're really mad. Why? Well, to us it doesn't seem like a big deal, but the reason they're mad is because what the disciples are doing, and thereby Jesus is guilty of this too, because he's their master, they're doing work. They're doing work. According to the Pharisees, they are, you know, doing harvesting kind of work. And why is that upsetting? Well, because very clearly in Jewish scriptures, in the Israel scriptures, God has commanded that we should not work on the Sabbath. It's very straightforward. It's right there in the Ten Commandments. Let me read it for you from Exodus 20. God says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your animals, any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day, and therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And it's very straightforward. And he bases in creation. God himself worked for six days and then rested on the seventh. And that's then a command that's given to his people to do the same. And we might ask why? Not because God just is mean or something or a bully or just wants to force things upon us because it's good for us the rhythm of working and then taking a break, the rhythm of working and then sleeping. You know, it is always kind of weird to think about the fact that we all sleep about an entire third of our lives away. And that's how God has made us. That's how God has made the world work in that we need rhythms of rest and work and, and an alternation between them. And, and what they really do for us is that it's not just so you can be more productive or something, It's it actually speaks to our ultimate dependence on God. that we, The fact that we have to sleep and the fact that we have to rest reminds us on a daily and weekly basis that we are really not in control and that God loves us and he wants us to have these times where we dedicate ourselves to thinking about him and worshiping him so that we might slow down and remember our limited nature as humans. And so, you see, if you look at chapter 6, verse 2, it's pretty obvious the problem here. So the Pharisees ask a question, but it's really an accusation. Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, we would probably say it's not. What you're doing is not biblical. Is probably what we'd say. And again, the logic is clear. God's commanded you don't work. Jesus and his disciples are working. Therefore, Jesus and his disciples are wrong. But, but it actually gets more complicated, doesn't it? Because we need to ask, what exactly consists, what does what was keeping the Sabbath and not working, what does that actually consist of? What is work and what is not? Does it mean on the Sabbath you can't make a meal? Maybe. Does it mean you can't feed your animals? Does it mean you can't walk to someone else's house? Or maybe if you can do that, can you carry something to someone else's house? Does that work? What if a woman needs to give birth and you have to travel and help her? Is that okay? What if an animal falls into a pit? What if you get a rip in your tunic? Can you sew it? What if the, you, you know, your tent is leaking and it's pouring down rain? Is it okay to sew that up? And you can just multiply it on and on and on. What is work and what is not on the Sabbath? And you see, people who want to obey God and wanted to obey God, they actually still have to figure out what is work and what is not. And this is where the scribes and the Pharisees come in for good, right? They come in. These are the people that are gifted and intellectually and whatever other ways and opportunities for education that they would study God's word. They would think about real life situations and then they would help people who wanted to obey God to figure out the best way to obey what God says. Their goal, the scribes and the Pharisees' goal was to make the Mosaic laws really practical and applicable to every day of life. And that's a good motive. And we all need that. Maybe you're facing a, a situation with a relationship or finances or whatever it is, and you come to a pastor and you ask for help. Like, how should I think about this? What is what, what does the Bible say about this? This is exactly what the scribes and Pharisees did. And over time, hundreds of years of this, they began to write down and debate what was the best answers on all these things, and they wrote them down. And so eventually we have these documents that are important to Jewish culture, the Mishnah and the Talmud, that have a ton of instructions about what, how do you actually live out God's laws because you need them. You need help to figure it out. And the Sabbath gets a ton of attention a lot of attention because it's a really regular part of life. So in the Mishnah, there are two sections that are dedicated to understanding the Sabbath, and one has 39 different categories of work. They like, think about this. Okay, there's 39 different categories of work. Sowing, planting, harvesting, lighting a fire, hunting, spinning, weaving, uh, moving something from one place to another, and then all these subsections. When does this apply? When does this not? And it's really important. Because again, for the Jewish people, they want to obey God, and the Sabbath keeps coming every week. I mean, it's a really big part of their lives. I mean, I, I often think of, you know, if you've ever taken a vacation that ended up being so stressful, you say... I need a vacation from this vacation. (laughs) That's what I. I feel like it's probably for a lot of Jewish people. Sometimes it felt like I need a Shabbat, I need a Sabbath from this preparation for the Sabbath because you have to plan ahead, you have to prepare your food ahead, you have to figure out what you can do the next day and not, you know, starting at at at, uh, sundown on Friday night. And it's true to this day. If you go to Israel, Jewish people are still wrestling with what can you do or not. So you have Shabbat elevators. You may know where that it automatically stops at every floor so that you don't have to do the work of pressing a button, right? I was talking to somebody after the service and they're telling me other examples of this as as well from life, you know, deciding what can be done or not. And, you know, it'd be easy for us to kind of look down on this and think, oh, they're being too nitpicky, but I want you to be sympathetic that they're really trying to figure out how to obey God's law. And there's actually one even deeper thing here. And that is that For the Jewish people, Sabbath became a really, really important, not only obedience to God, but a marker of what it really means to be a faithful Jew over against Gentiles who didn't do it, or even over against fellow Jewish people who didn't do it. Because by the time of Jesus, the Jewish people have been oppressed and run over and persecuted for hundreds of years. All these different nations have been running over them and oppressing them and limiting their freedom. And so this becomes, along with circumcision and eating kosher, become really important identity markers for them to say, this is what it means to be God's people. I was trying to think of an analogy. It'd be like, if, you know, if you're a US citizen or person who lives here, and you know, if, if our country were for hundreds of years being attacked by other countries, Russia or China, or whatever, not just with balloons, but actually taken over and like actually been oppressed, and like we can't do American things. If that happened, when you got a chance to say, This is America, whether it's playing baseball or eating apple pie or singing the Stars and Stripes, whatever it is, that would be like really, really important because it's like a sign that this is what it means to be an American over against those who are oppressing us. So, I've spent all this time talking about that because we need to feel the weight of what's about to happen. I mean, this is a very significant issue, the Sabbath is. And clearly, from their perspective, Jesus is breaking this. So, what is Jesus going to say? Look at chapter 6, verse 3. They say, Why are you doing what's unbiblical? And he says, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? he entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priest to eat and he gave some to his companions. And the Jews said, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So again, it's maybe not the answer they were wanting, but we need to think about what he's saying. He's saying, okay, look, even within obeying Sabbath, we have to recognize things are complicated and that sometimes needs outweigh the exact repre- the exact following of the law in the way that you think it does and he uses the story from David himself from 1 Samuel 21 where King David is on the run and he takes the he's given the bread of the presence from the priest and what the bread of the presence was it was this special loaf of bread that was put in the temple to represent God's presence and it's sanctified it's holy only the priest can eat it it's very important All right we don't really have an analogy for this, but if there was an S2 student lock-in on Saturday night and we came in here on Sunday morning, they'd like trash, drink all the boxed wine and trash the whole place or something. Even that wouldn't really analogize it because that, it's, it's more sacred than that for them. And yet David is given the bread and he eats it. And Jesus says, and he's not condemned for it. So how is that okay, Jesus saying? It's okay because there was a need there was a need that David and his companions had that was greater than just the following of the law in that way. Now, if that makes you feel uncomfortable, you're you're a good Pharisee, like me too, right? I mean, it's, it may feel a little uncomfortable. Like, okay, so that's what he says. And yet, if you think about the fact that the rabbis also recognized that these were complicated situations, they also made allowances like this. And if you go to other places where Jesus taught, I think most famously Matthew 23 Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says, you tithe dill and mint and cumin, you you obey the tithing laws, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So you see, even though you and I don't think of it, Jesus is helping us see we need to weigh the fact that God has a purpose in why he's given us these commands and he's saying the Pharisees are not getting it. And we'll come back to that. But did you notice also what he says there again in verse 5? The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? Well, we know when we read the Gospels that Jesus is the Son of David and the Lord of David. He's the true King. And he's saying, even as David and his companions had the right to eat this bread as the anointed king, so too do I. Now, you may not see that there, If you keep reading, you will. And and part of it is in this mysterious phrase, son of man. There's this phrase that Jesus used to refer to himself regularly. And it's a kind of a confusing phrase because it can just mean a human, right? Like son of Adam, we might say, or something. But it's very clear, if you keep reading the Gospels, that what Jesus means by son of man is this, this reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, where you have this being, this person who comes to the Ancient of Days on his throne and is given all authority. He shares the divine nature and is given all authority to rule over all the world. And Jesus is saying here and throughout the rest of the Gospels, this that's me. I am the one who rules over all the world. So ultimately he's saying, it wasn't David wrong for David to do it for a number of reasons, but no matter what happens, I am now the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, so... Not sure how you're feeling about all that. Fine. We know how they were feeling. They probably didn't know what to think. It's kind of a mysterious phrase. So then look what happens starting in verse six. So then on another Sabbath, Jesus went to the synagogue and he was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was shriveled. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the same people were looking for a reason to accuse him. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. They were really trying to make it clear that he was wrong. But Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up, stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there, and then Jesus said to him, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? And he looked around at all of them, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was completely restored. So obviously it's is a, a healing story. One of the many stories where Jesus... We see Jesus' power, and we see his compassion. That you have a man here who is a defect in society, and he probably can't work, and, and we can't appreciate this as fully, but it's interesting that Luke specifies that it's his right hand. And that's important because in ancient cultures and many cultures today, you use your hands for different things, And your right hand to use for positive things, greeting people, shaking people's hands, other things. Use your left hand for less honorable things. I'll let you figure out what that might be. And especially if you're eating with your hands, you want to protect your right hand as not being one to use for unsanitary purposes. And so this man is really a man whose life is full of shame and he's disconnected from society and he's a lesser in every way. And Jesus, with great compassion, heals him, changes his life. But what's interesting to pay attention to, though, is while that's absolutely true and beautiful, that's not actually what the story is about. It is another story where Jesus is leaning right into this issue of what is the Sabbath for? Why has God given us the Sabbath? And he pushes the issue, he makes this whole thing, this whole situation happen. Because he needs us to understand that, again, as Mark says it, the Gospel of Mark, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We weren't made to obey the Sabbath in a sense of that that's what we're for. God has given us the Sabbath for our good. And so in situations like this, where the man has a need, he's shamed, he's ostracized, he has no ability to provide for himself hardly, he is definitely outside of the community, Jesus restores him to life. This is far more important than whatever specific rules you might have about obeying the Sabbath. And then he makes the same argument again with action. So if, in the, if the last one, if you know, anybody could say, the Son of Man has authority to do this, but he backs it up now by showing that he does have the authority by healing this man right in front of everyone. So there's no doubt that what Jesus is saying is authoritatively from God. Okay, so it's an intense story. What does it mean? What Jesus is saying here is, again, that God gives us, gave the Israelites, gave, uh, gives us commands, and laws, and instructions, but they're always for our good. They're always for our good. God isn't up there just, you know, hurling down duties because he wants to do these things. He gives us instructions that are for our good, and what that means then is that as we work them out in the complex reality of our lives, we need wisdom, always asking why has God said this, not in a questioning way, but but resisting the temptation all of us to turn God's laws into legalism and turn God's commandments into something that he did not mean them to be. And do we do that? Yes. We do it all the time. And and the really ironic and and really sad thing is that the people in society who are most likely to do that are the most religious people. I mean, you and me. So I always tell people I pastor and my students as well, whenever you run across the Pharisees in the Bible, it's so easy to think of them as these people that were like on Jesus' side and we're over here like, yeah, you get them. That's not the point of the Pharisees in the Bible. The point of the Pharisees in the Bible is for you and me to look at ourselves and recognize ourselves in them. We're not supposed to be piling on the Pharisees here. They were people, for the most part, who were trying to do what's right. Not all of them had pure motives for sure, but they were trying to do what's right, but what they are, what happens to them is exactly what can happen to us and does happen to us. As individuals and as a, as a corporate body, we can take God's commands and I think we can do three things to them. We can externalize them, we can calcify them, and we can weaponize them. Let me say something about each of those. We, say, we can externalize them. It is so easy to read what God says and then obey it by keeping it far away from who we are really on the inside. And this is this message of the Sermon on the Mount. It's all throughout the Bible, but the Sermon on the Mount is the place we could can see it so clearly that Jesus takes all these commandments, like do not commit adultery and do not murder, and he he puts his finger right on it and says, I don't want you to do those externally bad things, but even if you obey those, but your heart... If you just keep that in an external and your heart is far from God and and your life is full of lust and anger and bitterness and, and lying, whatever's going on in your heart that's the opposite of that, Jesus says, there's no life there and that's not God's will for you and you're not honoring God in that. And so there's this constant tendency in all of us to externalize what God has commanded. That's what they're doing, it's what we do. We can also calcify What God has commanded. We can get stuck in the minutiae. Again, Matthew 23, 23, you tithe dill, mint, and cumin. So you're doing the details of what God has commanded, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, showing mercy to people, helping people, standing for justice and, and righteousness and faithfulness, we can take whatever traditions that were originally based on something good and we calcify them in a way that we end up doing the opposite of what God would do. We don't show mercy. We don't love people. And, and part of the reason you can see you're doing that is if you feel angry and annoyed at other people for doing things in a way differently than you. And we can weaponize them. This is the worst form. And Pharisees did it. We do it as well where we can take what God has commanded us and we don't take it as a mirror, which is what we're supposed to do to look at ourselves, but we use it as a window onto what's wrong with other people. And I know this is something, if you've been here a while, you know, I talk about this and I use this metaphor a lot because I think it's very important that when we read scripture, it's it's a metaphor I get from the book of James. When we read scripture, we're supposed to read it like a mirror and say, God, how is this true of me? But what we so often do is read it as as a window and a window with a rifle, where again, we're upset and angry and annoyed at other people's for not doing righteousness in the way that we think. And Jesus, of course, addresses this with this idea of a plank and a speck, that we focus on getting the speck out of somebody else's eyes without paying attention to the plank we have in our own. And of course, of course, there are times to say something's right or wrong, for sure. I mean, Jesus himself does that all the time. But the call to us, to not weaponize god's commands and make them a burden on anyone else because the moment we do that we are doing exactly what he's speaking against here with the pharisees and of course on top of all this is jesus's command again that he is the lord and he is the one who is we can trust that he's telling us the right way to think about these things so what do we do with this well as I was thinking about this last week, I was preaching in Texas and was thinking about Matthew 23 this week as well. You know, I, I, it it really struck me that there's this way of thinking about Jesus that I think the gospels really put upon us that we often don't think of. And maybe here's the way to get at it. like, Like I like to think about if we had banners in here that describe different names of Jesus, like Lord of Lords and King of Kings and Savior and Shepherd and Friend of Sinners, all wonderful things, right? Here's a banner that I think we don't think of, but I think should be there, and that is Disruptor. (laughs) Disruptor. Because if you pay attention to the Gospels, what happens is that as people draw near to Jesus... He is very disruptive to their understanding of themselves, their understanding of the kingdom, their understanding of who God is, not in a way that like a punk rocker would or to be ornery intellectually or to, out of insecurity, asserting his authority over us, not all the ways we might do that, but he is disruptive for our good. Really, just start, just start thinking about the stories in the Gospels, these here in Luke 5 and 6, but everywhere. I love how one theologian says, he says, conversations with Jesus rarely unfold as planned, as I said at the beginning. Jesus continually shocks and astonishes people, he rattles their cages, he upends their expectations, he eludes their traps. Like in this one, he zeroes in on their deepest motivations. And, you know, it's maybe kind of fun to read the Gospels and see that until, as he says, it dawns in you that it, if you're afraid of the truth, afraid of being exposed, you better keep your distance from Jesus. And I think you see this in the story. There's really actually two responses. Jesus is super disruptive. You're on the Sabbath issue. And there's really two responses to it. Did you see them? One is the response of faith of the disciples, and this man who listens to Jesus and stretches out his hand, and the other there in verse 11 was fury. They're incredibly angry at him. This is what happens when people draw near to Jesus and when we do as well. In fact, if we feel apathetic towards Jesus, that what that really means is we're not near to him. Because when we're near to him, we feel the disruption. Now, hear me clearly. I mean, I'm not saying by that that we feel anxious about him. If you're a Christian, we don't live in anxiety that Jesus is going to get us or something. What I mean is that Jesus' disruptive activity in our life is constantly, and I love how Niedergen says it, that Jesus is often coming into the comfortable living room of our lives and starts throwing the furniture around. Not, not in meanness, but in love, for our good. In the way that a dog might bark and disturb our comfort when there's an intruder or a neighbor knocking on the door when our house is on fire, or a family, come, family or friend coming in and rescuing us from addiction. This is the kind of activity that Jesus does. He comes into our lives and disrupts them. He disrupts our Understanding of maybe what morality is, if we've started to calcify it and weaponize it and externalize it, he disrupts our sense of comfort. And maybe today, I mean, it's good to ask, where are you? I mean, I had asked myself this morning, where am I? Like, am I do I feel like I've got it all down? I figured out my morality, figured out my money, figured out my relationships, whatever, and I want to keep it that way and how much energy I give to kind of being comfortable. And the reality is that the more I draw near, the more you draw near to Jesus. I mean, you can resist it and be angry at what he's doing, or in faith, we can lean in. And I think for a lot of us, it might mean thinking about our finances more carefully. might think about that relationship that has turned sour, and you just want to ignore it or just gossip about it instead of stepping towards it in reconciliation. Maybe for a lot of us it's starting to feel the disruption of listening to Jesus and starting to look inside and seeing a lot of brokenness and shame and ways that we show up that are manipulative and hurtful in our marriages and in our parenting and our co-working and it's very disruptive very disruptive and again, we can resist it. We can be mad and we can say, I don't want anything to do with that. But if you'll lean into it, if we will stretch out our hand, we can find restoration and healing and wholeness. And his disruption, as we draw near again, is for our good. And, th- and this would all, I always love to say, you know, this would all be bad news if Jesus were harsh and demeaning and shaming, but he never is. When he draws near and when we draw near to him, we begin to feel that. And are you feeling that in your life? You begin to feel that he's touching some areas and it feels very uncomfortable. If we will lean into it and, and receive it, he'll bring order. He'll bring life. I like to think of it as kingdom of God feng shui for our souls, right? He'll bring this sort of order and beauty and balance to our souls because He's not here to shame us or condemn us. He, like He's saying about the Sabbath, is here because He wants us to find life. He wants us to find life. And so, as we, you know, come to the table and as we think about receiving this story and really this whole series of stories in Luke and trying to say, Jesus, what is happening here? I want to invite you to draw near. Maybe for the first time, maybe you don't know what to think about Jesus. And I want to say, if you draw near that he will bring life and healing. There will be some disorder that you will see, but that's the only way to find life. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.